Well, good, good morning, Riverstone. How are you? Morning. Um, my name is Austin Wofford, like Tom just said, and we were here, Maddie and I, with a team from, it was a partnership between New Room and uh, the Woodlands UMC down in uh, Woodlands, Texas, and we went on what we called the Awakening Tour, where we traveled and talked to people about what it would look like to pray for a move of God that would change your city or your campus or culture and society. And so that's how we ended up here uh, just about a year ago, yeah, around this time. Eight years ago, um, gosh, what was I doing eight years ago? Um, <laughs> watching UK basketball with a bunch of other students um, about eight years ago. But yeah, we're so happy to get to be with you this morning, and I'm so pleased to be able to, to share with you. Maddie and I are from Lexington, Kentucky, and we've admired Riverstone from afar, having gotten to meet Tom and Melissa a little bit over a year ago now, and just found such kindred spirits with them and and look up to them uh, so much. And we just feel kindred with any church that's a praying church and a worshiping church, and so we're really pleased to get to be with you here today. And um, to start, I want to talk about our passion for awakening a little bit. Um, As Tom said, New Room's mission statement is to sow seeds Uh, for the next great awakening. And this search for awakening of what it would look like in our culture and our society has taken Maddie and I around the world. About this time last year, we were in England and Scotland meeting with church planters and church leaders who have vibrant emerging adult communities. Um, So it's post-Christian, post-modern, secular, uh, Western society. And we wanted to know, because we feel like America's headed down that road further and further, what does it look like to reach and spiritually form emerging adults in the toughest places in Western society? And so that took us to England and Scotland. (laughs) And we went on a tour, um, just meeting with church leaders. And I want to share about one day in particular where we ended up in Oxford. It was towards the end of our time on the trip. And we were headed on the train to Oxford. And we thought that we would book the hotel on our phones on our way to the city. And it was late afternoon when we were headed in, and we had a problem that we could not find any cell phone service. So we didn't have cell phone service headed in, and so we ended up on the curb there in Oxford outside of the train station with the sun setting, it getting cold and dark outside with nowhere to stay. And we stared at our phones for about 20 minutes, and finally we had service that, that popped up, and we just booked the first hotel that we could find on our, on our phones, because we didn't know how long the service would last. And so we booked the hotel, hop on a bus, it shuttles us over uh, to our hotel, and we step out of the bus and onto the sidewalk there, and we look, and I, I think we have a picture of the hotel. We look, and that was our hotel. It was a thousand-year-old castle. <laughs> in an area that looked like Harry Potter world. And we were really surprised um, to find out that the building was as old as it was. It was originally built for the nobility, but somewhere in the 1300s, it became the prison for the naughty students there at Oxford. (laughs) So on Halloween night of 2018, we ended up spending the night in a 700-year-old prison. It was a prison for 700 years. I thought it would have been, you know, I thought it would have been a hotel for... I don't know, 100 years? No, it was a prison until the mid-90s. There were people probably walking around 40 years old thinking about how they spent a night in, that, in our hotel room um, on the street the day that we were there. So anyways, I didn't want to make a big deal out of it at the time uh, that we were spending the, you know, Halloween um, in a 700-year-old medieval prison. Um, didn't make a, a huge deal out of it because I didn't want to frighten myself or Maddie. 
But that's where we ended up staying. And the next day, we were meeting with a pastor named Simon. And Simon was a wonderful middle-aged uh, British bloke of a pastor who was uh, showing us around the city. He's just a friend, friend that we had met, and he was showing us the different religious sites, a lot of Reformation history, a lot of medieval Christian history, a lot of Lewis and Tolkien history uh, in the city of Oxford. And we ended up walking by the prison-turned-hotel, and he said, that was the prison, you know, for a few hundred years. And we said, yeah, we know we stayed there last night. And his eyes lit up. I think he knew that we'd be interested in this. He said, well, did you know that that prison was where Charles Wesley preached his first sermon? Oh, so we, we have people who know about the Wesleys. <laughs> I was wondering if you would, would know about the Wesleys. If you don't know about John and Charles Wesley, um, they were brothers uh, who were students at Oxford in the early 1700s. And they met another man named George Whitfield at Oxford, and they began what was known as the Holy Club. And the Holy Club were just a group of young men at a time when society was advancing and Christianity was retreating, at a time where Europe and Western society was becoming more secular and less religious, at a time when the French were about to revolt politically and turn their uh, churches and cathedrals into houses of philosophy, there were groups of men like the Wesley brothers who were meeting in England in Oxford and forming clubs where they weren't considering how would they politically revolt, they were considering how do we reform the church for the next move of God. And so that's what the Holy Club was. And this group of men who were meeting at this critical time as students, out of their ministry flowed what was known as the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening saw hundreds of thousands of people around the world in England and America come to faith. It changed the course of the history of the world. And today, over 500 million Christians around the world can trace their theological roots back to this group of men who met in Oxford in the Holy Club. And it was just a brick and mortar, stone representation Uh, Maddie and I felt like we were able to stay in the place that a movement of God among the poor, the disenfranchised, people who were sick and in prison was partially started in this random hotel uh, prison that we stayed at that night. And so Maddie and I are really passionate about awakening at a time where it seems like uh, culture is advancing and religion might be retreating at a time where it appears like God might be uh, distancing himself from our culture and society. We believe that God isn't retreating, but God's pulling back like a wave coming to crash in uh, in the next great awakening here in America. And so we're so happy to get to be with you this morning. Thanks for uh, allowing us to to share with you today. And uh, we'll be praying together that God would do something unexpected in our time and in our society. Today, around the, around the uh, world, a lot of the evangelical churches are celebrating this as Orphan Sunday, just an awareness Sunday uh, that there are orphans, there are people, a lot of children on the streets who are need, in need of family care, clothing, that sort of thing. So in solidarity with them, we're going to be talking about Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8, I'll be speaking on the spirit of adoption, and I would love for Maddie to come up and read the scripture for us this morning. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, 
and for sin, he condemned in sin the flesh, and in order in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but for those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is, is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we, who are, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, but, but if by the spirit you put to deeds the death of to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, in whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Will you pray for us? Father, we thank you so much for this church. We thank you, Jesus, for the ways that you are moving and that, Holy Spirit, you are filling this place with ever-increasing glory in your bride. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint Austin's words and that you would just speak to us. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from heaven today. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that we would um, agree with the spirit of adoption and cry out, Abba, Father, today. That we would come closer to you, Father, and that you would pour out your spirit on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Maddie. Yeah, so the Awakening Tour last spring, it was a tour of 25-stop tour, like I mentioned, where we went and traveled and talked about what it would look like to pray for a move of God that would change your city or your culture. And this tour was, you know, we stopped here, but it was mostly a college tour. We ended up at 15 colleges across six different states. It took us about six weeks to do. And we met with uh, thousands of students, got to pray with dozens of them. And so it really gave us the sense that we had our finger on the pulse of what it was like to be a Christian in college today. And I remember the last night of this tour, we were, we were uh, ministering during the ministry time at the end of the night in Anderson, Indiana, at Anderson University. I remember there was a girl at the end of the line. This is the end of the tour, the last stop, the end of the line, and she came forward and she was just weeping. She couldn't quite express what she wanted prayer for because she was crying. I remember seeing her and thinking, I probably know what this girl is going to ask prayer for. You know, we've been through this so many different times and felt like I had a good understanding of what it was that she was going to say. And sure enough, she started asking for prayers for some of the key things that students across the Southeast had asked prayers for for the last six weeks. She has to be prayed for, um, for, for loneliness. She said, I feel rejected by my family. I feel like I'm not good enough for them. I feel like I don't belong with them. I feel like my parents don't see me as, uh, as really like a full family member. She said, I feel 
I've rejected by my friends. I've been kicked off of text threads. I feel like I don't have anyone to belong with. She said, I feel depressed and anxious. Some days so anxious that I can't get out of bed or can't go to school uh, when it's time to go to class. And I just felt for her. And, I, and as, I, as I heard her prayer request, it did strike me that she was naming all the strongholds that we felt like we had come in contact with over the previous few weeks. Depression, anxiety, loneliness, isolation. They're all so familiar to a lot of people in the church and within uh, the college campus that they almost sound rote or routine. Throw in things like uh, sex addiction, porn addiction, uh, phone addiction, Throw in addiction issues and sin issues, and you really have the whole bundle right there. And I think that for people who are experiencing these types of issues, that Romans 8 has a lot to say to them. I think there's a special message that God has for us this morning if we feel like we're in that place. Because as I was hearing her speak about what she was struggling with, I felt like I didn't hear as much the prayer request of a girl as I did hear the cries of a generation and the heart cry of the church. Paul in Romans 8, and I'm going to talk about this in a way, hopefully this will break down the scripture fairly quickly, but give us a good idea of what's happening here. Is He's talking about two different lifestyles. He's talking about life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And he says that people who aren't in Jesus are living in the life of the flesh. And he's saying that those of us who are in Jesus are living the life of the spirit. And there are really two trajectories of life that we can't live in at the same time. And so if you could imagine kind of this lower trajectory of life, we have life in the flesh. Paul says that life in the flesh begins with a mindset on things of the flesh and that it ends with death. And there are a couple of stops that we make along the way in this trajectory of life that Paul's talking about. And I think whether or not Paul's a religious authority or whether you think he has spiritual authority to be talking about these sorts of things, whether or not you believe kind of in the doctrine of Christianity, I believe that even good atheist philosophers would probably agree that if there is no God, it would make sense for us to live in these types of ways. You know, one of the stops that we make on this life from the mindset on things of the flesh to death is a stop in fear. Just like Maddie read earlier, Paul says that we're no longer to be slaves to fear. And if you know that wonderful song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. You guys know that one? (laughs) I'm a child of God. Well, people who aren't in Jesus, it would make sense for them to be slaves to fear. It makes sense for them if there is no God and if the current physical reality is all that there is to be known, then wouldn't it make sense that you would be fearful, that you'd be anxious about the pain that you'd have to experience or the suffering that you'd have to go through or you'd have to be anxious about death? If we're really just a random collection of particles, if God doesn't exist, or if we don't have life in God, then we're really orphaned people, without meaning or without purpose. And this would surely have to create some sort of sense of anxiety within us that we would live in, slavery to fear. Another stop along the trajectory is lawlessness. Paul says that those who set their mind on the flesh cannot please God. They can't live lives according to the law of God. And again, this makes complete sense, because why would you live your life according to any kind of law if God doesn't exist, if God's not real, if the physical moment and the present day is all that's promised, and if we're really just stuck in this trajectory of trying to avoid pain and suffering, and we're in a survival mindset and mentality, then why would we have any reason to give our lives over to God or over to other people? What's our imperative? What's our urge? What's our call to live a life laid down in service for others? 
So we have slavery to fear, we have lawlessness, and then Paul says that the mindset on the flesh ends in death. And of course, if there is no God, death is just at the end of your life. Pretty cheery, huh? (laughs) And the good news for us is that Paul doesn't leave it there. He does talk about another trajectory of life, and he talks about it as the life of the Spirit. And the life of the Spirit starts with adoption, and it ends in resurrection. Paul says of the life of the Spirit, we're brought into the family of God, we're brought in to belong with God, and it's from this place of belonging in life with God that we are to live in the rest of our existence. It's from this place that we plant our feet in the house of God, from family with God, from this intimate, family-like relationship belonging with God, and that gives us a few different stops on the road to resurrection. You know, one of those spots that Paul talks about is life and peace. He says that a mindset on the spirit is life and peace. And again, this makes a lot of sense that we would have life and peace because if we're at home with God and we're receiving love from God and we have our security in something beyond our immediate circumstances, then we're able to have just that, security. It doesn't matter the the pain or the suffering or the anxiety that we would fear about death, but we know that there's purpose in that and that we're not alone. We're not orphaned to walk through our pain and our suffering and our lives on our own, but we do that from a place of belonging with God. It's from the overflow of the life of God that we're able to walk in life and peace. Another stop along the way is righteousness. Paul says that the spirit is life because of righteousness. You know, if someone who doesn't know God is destined to live a lawless life, then it just makes sense that someone who is in God is destined to live a life that pleases God. If we have security that our lives aren't about our successes or failures, that our lives aren't about our pleasure-seeking over our pain, our comfort over our discomfort, the avoidance of suffering, but if, in fact, we have security in our lives beyond our immediate circumstances, we know that we're headed to resurrection, then we have the ability to give our lives away. No, I would even say that we are compelled to give our lives away. The love of God compels us to give our lives away in righteousness. And Paul in Romans 8.11 says that those of us who are in, the, in Jesus and living lives of the Spirit share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Then you will share in that resurrection. And so where life in the flesh is very hopeless, life in the Spirit is full of life and peace and righteousness and hope and joy Our journey is one from belonging with God, traveling with him through this life, experiencing life and peace, righteousness, and one day we'll go to resurrection. This is good news, isn't it? As I was reading this scripture and as I was studying it for this morning, there was a tension that sort of arose and jumped off the pages to me. Because as I was reading it, I was thinking about these two different lives that Paul is outlining for us, and I'm remembering all the different prayer requests that I had through the awakening tour. I'm remembering moments in my life where I feel distanced from God, where I feel depressed. I remember times in college, and especially early in my 20s, where I felt just this extreme hopelessness and purposelessness and worthlessness in my life. And I've prayed with so many different people that 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 is their experience. And so the tension that arises in me comes from the fact that Paul says that we don't share in the lower trajectory of life. 
And many of us who are sitting in in seats in churches all across America today, and myself at times, would point to the spirit of adoption, and we would say, we think that we are in the family of God, but we feel like we are living on this lower trajectory. And this causes a great concern for me. Why is this? Why is it that Paul would say that these lives have nothing to do with each other? And that those of us who are in these seats and call ourselves Christians should be living on this upper trajectory of life. Romans 8.1, and this is how Paul starts the whole passage. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's good news. The tension comes in when we feel like we're living on the lower trajectory, but we know that God has promised life in the Spirit. Heidi and Roland Baker are missionaries to Mozambique. Um, you may have heard of them before. Their ministry is fairly well known. There are uh, missions there. They plant churches every weekend. They've been there for about 20 years. They train pastors you know, by the hundreds every year. They, they train local pastors to work in the churches as apostolic leaders. And it's just full-on awakening and revival. I got to spend three months with them just a few years ago, working in their missions team. And it's amazing what God is doing through their ministry. The state there in Mozambique has flipped from majority Muslim to majority Christian in just a 20-year span. It's an awesome outpouring that God's doing there. But really, their ministry is as simple as uh, it's an adoption ministry. It's really as simple. When they started, it was really as simple as just going out on the streets finding children who needed homes. The average age of a person in Mozambique is 17, so that's not hard to do. It's really just a country of street children. And bringing, they would bring in broken children into their homes and give them a place to belong and a family to be in. They would give them clothes and feed them and love them and educate them. And Heidi tells these stories, story after story, of going out on the street and finding children who know nothing but survival, who know nothing but having to scrap and fight to live day in and day out, who know nothing but impoverishment and poverty, who are probably bloated and sick, and she brings them into her home. And she'll take them to the fridge, and she'll say, you can have anything you want out of the fridge. Any Coke that you want, whenever you want, go ahead and feel free to grab it. She'll take, take them to the TV and say, you can watch whatever you want, uh, whenever you want to watch TV. She'll take them to their bed, and she'll say, you have a bed to sleep in now. Feel free to sleep here. And you can imagine the type of turmoil that this creates inside the, the life and the mind and the heart of a, of a young person in Mozambique who's going from having to fight for their lives to a place of affluence and abundance. Heidi tells the story of one boy named Ramadan. Ramadan, she said, was full of anger and full of malice and that he would kick and punch and bite and he was just a, a, a rage-filled child. You can imagine the type of life growing up on the streets uh, would, would create this real anger inside a lot of these boys. And she said Ramadan was one of those kids. She said she brought him in and showed him all the things. You can have a Coke, you can sleep in this bed, you can watch this TV. But that was more likely for him to run back out on the street or to kick, punch, bite than it was for him to accept the gifts that he'd been given. Heidi thought, I I need to do something more intentional to show this child that he's loved. And so she would tell him just that. Every time he was around, she would say, Ramadan, I I love you. She would talk to him about how much God loves him. She would pray him to sleep at night. 
and would sing to him. And it wasn't an overnight process, but it was a process of bringing him in and showing him love, and eventually he became more likely to take a Coke out of the fridge or to sleep in the bed than he would to run back out on the streets. And it doesn't take a pastoral genius or a theologian to be able to know where I'm going with this analogy this morning. I think there are a lot of us within the church, myself included at times, who struggle to live in the spirit, to live from the place of adoption because we know the reality, the physical reality of our lives. We know our sin struggles. We know the type of failures that we feel day in and day out. There's all sorts of external indications that we aren't actually adopted and we give credence to these voices. Emotionally, we feel unworthy for God. But that's the good news about adoption. The good news about adoption is that if we're waiting to feel worthy to be with God and belong with God, then we're going to be waiting our entire lives. That the worthiness is not the issue. The reality is that God chose us. Just like Heidi chose the children off the street, God chooses us in the states that he sees us to bring us into his family. I believe that God wants us to feel like his love is audacious, that his love is gracious, that his love is overflowing and abundant, and it should make us feel uncomfortable with the type of gifts that we've been given because we know that we actually don't deserve them. Because this is the reality of adoption. Adoption isn't natural born. Adoption doesn't come naturally. Adoption is something that is a gift of grace. Adoption isn't natural, it's a gift of grace. Count Zinzendorf, the uh, leader of the Moravian movement, if you've ever heard of that, uh, he did a lot on the concept of adoption. He says that Christian salvation in nature is like this. He says, we're Christians in the same way that a wife takes the name of her husband and is afterwards not called by her maiden name, but is called by the name of her husband. That we be, when we become Christians, we receive a new name. It's not something natural born. It's something that's given, and it's a gift of grace. Pastor Charlie Dates is a pastor in Chicago. He's been at a church there for a few years. He's an amazing preacher. I'd suggest you find him online and listen to him. But he tells the story of when he first got to the church, There was a piano on stage that was too large to move, but too broken to be used. And so it just sat dormant on the stage for the first year. And he thought at the end of that year that it was time for him to to get this piano off the stage somehow. So he called in piano experts, and the experts came in, and he thought that he would have to pay them to remove the piano. But something funny happened. People started offering him money for the piano. And he thought, this broken piano might be worth something that I've been previously unaware of. And so he called the original factory that made it, and they flew in a couple women who went in and looked at the piano on the stage, and after a couple hours, they went to Pastor Dates, and they said, "Uh, Pastor Dates, um, we would be willing to break down this piano, box it up, ship it back to our factory, fix it, restore it, we can bring it back here and make it good as new. He thought, well, that sounds nice, how much would that be? They said multiple tens of thousands of dollars, and he just laughed, you know. No, 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 you don't understand, this piano's worthless to me, this piano doesn't have any value to me. I just want it gone. I can't spend tens of thousands of dollars on the piano. One of the women pointed him over, and she brought him into the, right next to the piano under the hood, and she pointed in, and she said, "Uh, Pastor Dates, do you see that name there? He said, yeah. She said, that name is Steinway. There are only five of these pianos made every year. This is a priceless piano. You've made a mistake. 
you think that the worth of the piano is found in its functionality. It's not. The worth of the piano is found in the name that's printed on the inside of it. And this is the truth about our adoption. And this is the missing piece, is that in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus on the cross saw the price of our restoration, and he said, I will pay that price. That price is worth it. And so he transforms our lives on the lower trajectory and brings us into the spirit of adoption. The price that costs, the disconnect that we feel when we live on the lower trajectory, it's a real disconnect, but that's been connected. The two trajectories have been connected by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God sees us, he doesn't see us in our functionality, he sees us in the name that's been printed on the inside of us, and that name is Jesus that name is Christian. When we take in that name and we, when we live in that life and when we accept that spirit, that's the name that is printed on the inside of us, whether we like it or not, we need to become comfortable with the audacious, gracious, overflowing, abundant love that God has for us. I worked six months in Alcoholics Anonymous rehab. And uh, the men there and the women there had an amazing faith. I saw God do some incredible transformational work in the lives of those people. And it struck me after a couple of months of working in that drug and alcohol rehab, just how even in the first couple of steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that these, uh, these men and women would have a more practical faith than what I would see most of the time in everyday church. See, the alcoholics and drug addicts who are going through rehab don't have the luxury of being able to push off the healing of God in their lives for death. A lot of us stand and we put God at a distance and we say, God, I don't believe that you can fix me now. I don't believe that you can restore me in the present moment, but when I die, I trust that you'll do it then. Alcoholics and drug addicts don't have that luxury. I believe that if the church claimed even just the first two steps of the AA process, that there would be rampant freedom in the church. Step number one is to admit that you have a problem that you cannot fix. And uh, I don't think that's a problem for a lot of us. I think a lot of us just feel that. It's the second step that we get hung up on. The second step of the process is to believe in a higher power that can save you, heal you, and restore you. I believe that God's asking us today, do you believe that I am who I say I am? Do you believe that I am the higher power? Will you step into the second step? Will you believe in the name that's been printed on the inside of you? I believe that God wants to bring us into life and peace. God wants to walk with us through righteousness and into resurrection. I believe that he wants to do that from the, from the place of belonging. If your heart stirred this morning, I would just encourage you in prayer to invite God in, to allow him to come to declare the name that's been given on the inside of you. The Abba Father cry. The older I get, the more I think that this cry isn't just a a lovely hymn that we sing, a lovely spirit song that emerges. I think at times, it's more like a battle cry, declaring who we are, even when we don't feel it. Abba Father, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your audacious love. We thank you for the grace that you've given us. God, for the life that you've brought us into, for the place of belonging that you've given us in your family. 
and Holy Spirit, would you claim the declaration of adoption that you gave to Jesus? The message from the Father that says, this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my child, with who I love and with who I am well pleased. God, I ask that you would swing the doors of our heart wide open. And Holy Spirit, that you would walk in, that you would empower us in the place of belonging to life and peace, to righteousness and to resurrection. Jesus, we trust your cross. We trust the power of your strength and your grace to do a restoration process work in us today. We say, come Lord Jesus. Amen.